Good morning. Good to see you here this morning. Take your Bible, if you would, please. Turn to Luke chapter number 9. Luke chapter number 9. We're going to begin reading in a few moments in verse number 37. Message that I've entitled, Four Mistakes That Most Christians Make. You'll note if you look at the outline that's included in your bulletin that I've also given you two other parallel accounts in Matthew chapter 17 and Mark chapter 9, which give us some more details about this story that is not included in Luke's account. The previous verses in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 27, Jesus has taken his inner circle of three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on the mountaintop, and he was transfigured before him before them. We discovered that being transfigured means that Jesus became on the outside what he was on the inside. For a brief moment, the veil of his flesh was lifted, put aside, and his disciples were able to see the glory of his deity. The disciples also saw Moses and Elijah, and they listened as they talked to Jesus about his impending death on the cross. They even heard the voice of God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. The disciples must have been almost beside themselves with excitement as they came down from that mountaintop experience. They certainly did not understand everything that had happened to them, but they were also no doubt filled with joy. And although the disciples would have liked to remain on the mountaintop, They obediently followed Christ down the mountain and suddenly the disciples find themselves in the real world. According to Matthew's account in chapter 7, Matthew 17, 14, when Jesus and his disciples came down from the mountain, they found the other nine disciples engaged in argument with some of the scribes. It seems the desperate father had brought his son to Jesus for healing. But when the father had arrived, he found that Jesus had already gone up on the mountaintop. And so he asked the disciples that remained at the base of the mountain to heal his son. But they had been unable to cast out the demon. And the scribes are contentious of them for their lack of power. The scribes were no doubt taking great relish in the failure of Jesus' disciples. And were using the disciples' failure as an opportunity to argue that Jesus was also lacking in power. I want you to see four things with me this morning, four mistakes that most Christians make. Number one, a lack of faith, not trusting God to do what only God can do. Verse 37 says, Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. And suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it parts from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast him out, but they could not. And then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And so he was still coming. The demon threw him down and convulsed him. 
And then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. First of all, I want you to look with me at this desperate father. Matthew tells us that the father got down on his knees before Jesus. Dr. Luke records him as saying, I beg you to look on my son, for he is my only son. In Mark chapter 9, the father in agonizing detail describes the pitiful condition of his son. Every verb that we find in Verse 18 in his account is in the present tense, and it describes a horrible, ongoing situation of demonic torment. It says, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. Now let's look at the son. Matthew describes this young man as epileptic, but it is more than that, much more. The word that is translated in your Bible as epileptic is a very interesting word in the Greek. It literally means to be moonstruck. It is from this word that we get our word lunatic. In fact, it is the way that King James translates this word. Because they believed in that period of time that certain strange behaviors were caused by phases of the moon. But the problem in this case is not neurological. It is demonic. Charles Swindoll points out Luke was a physician. And while medical science had a long, long way to go, Dr. Luke was not necessarily given to superstition. Furthermore, epilepsy in those days was a known condition, if even poorly understood, and yet it was seen as distinct from being demon-possessed. The Bible teaches that evil is not just an impersonal force, like in Star Wars, the dark side, but rather that evil exists and that it is furthered through the work of Satan and his demons. Believers obviously have no business dabbling with darkness, such as consulting horoscopes or fortune tellers or possessing such things as tort cards. They are all forbidden by Scripture. This particular boy, boy's symptoms are demonic in origin. In verse 39, it says, And behold, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. In some way, this boy has become a victim of demon possession. The evil spirit takes hold of him and takes possession of him. He throws him to the ground and he causes convulsions to seize the boy. And there is no doubt that this young man has suffered both physical and emotional scars from the injuries inflicted on him over the years. Now when you look at the disciples' failure, it says in verse 40, and they could not. Why did the disciples fail? Their failure was not because they had not tried. In fact, I think it's likely that each of the disciples in turn tried to cast out this demon. On the contrary, I believe they did their very best, but still they could not. 
Now, the disciples had been given the power in chapter 9, verse 1, power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. They had previously been successful in doing so. And surely they had every right then to expect to be able to do so now. But they failed. They could not. Sometimes in our day we find ourselves attempting to do God's work without very much success. And so we roll up our sleeves and we work even harder only to fail. And most of the time we don't understand why. We think that perhaps we have not worked hard enough. Perhaps we should have tried a different method. We wonder what it is that we have missed. That is the very problem the disciples faced. Whether you realize it or not, this building, sitting on a major highway, makes a silent promise to everyone who passes by that this is a place where God meets with his people. This church building promises if you need God, you can find help here. What happens, though, if the world comes in and they find no help for their problems? When people come to First Baptist Church and they worship with us, what is their thought as they leave? Do they see the power of God at work in our lives or not? Do they see people who are being progressively changed by the power of God at work in their lives? Or do they come seeking fellowship and acceptance but leave saying they could not? I'm afraid that you could write the words and they could not over many churches today. The disciples did not fail for lack of effort, nor did they fail because they lost their power or because they had used the wrong technique, but because of a lack of faith. This becomes clear from Jesus' answer to the, to the Father in verse 41. He says, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Like most of us, the disciples did not want to share their embarrassment in front of the entire crowd. So Matthew tells us when they were safely out of the hearing of the scribes, they asked Jesus privately why they could not cast out the demon, and he replied in Matthew's account, because of the littleness or lack of faith. Matthew tells us Jesus saw their failure because of unbelief. And this unbelief, he said, was manifested by a lack of prayer. The problem was instead of being, of defending themselves, instead of engaging in an argument with the scribes, they should have prayed. They had a choice, just as we have a choice, pride or prayer, defensiveness or dependence, and they made the wrong choice. When Matthew records that Jesus says in verse 29, this kind, this kind comes out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Jesus is not saying here that they are faced with some kind of super demon. The point is that when they run up against circumstances which contradict their experience and their expectations, when they have failed, when they should not have failed, when things do not go as they should have gone, they should have prayed. 
Neither is Jesus saying that there was some kind of a magical prayer that needed to be saved. Some prayer that if it had been prayed on that occasion, it could have done the job. Jesus implies that they were neglecting a lifestyle of prayer. The reason for their powerlessness is prayerlessness. The scripture makes it difficult for us to extract some kind of full formula for spiritual success. But we can extract is the need for faith, honest, vulnerable, and trusting faith. Prayer is the vital link in transforming the power and translating that power that was found on the mountaintop down into the valley. The power of the mountaintop is still available every day in whatever circumstances we are confronted with, but we must pray. In verse 41, we're introduced to the disappointment of Jesus. Jesus is grieved by the unbelief he finds even among his own disciples. Luke ends verse 41 by recording Jesus saying, bring your son here. All of us know what it's like to be disappointed with people. Because people are human, they will inevitably let you down. One has to wonder how many people in our world today will go to hell, not because Christ can't save them, but because some Christian let them down. In turn, many Christians will continue to sit on the sidelines in their Christian life. Failures because some other Christian disappointed them. If you have had a disappointing experience within a church, if some Christian has disappointed you, then you need to hear the words, come to Jesus. The challenge is to focus on the Savior, not other people. Mark, in his account, gives us insight into the exchange between Jesus and the boy's father. The father says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And in response to that, Jesus says, if you believe, all things are possible to him who believes. In the story before us, the father was called upon to believe because Christ told him that faith was the condition to his son being healed. Jesus told the father, the question is whether, not whether I am able, but whether you believe. Faith does not consist in believing that God will do something, but rather in that God is able to do anything. Now, this has been one of the most abused scriptures in all of scripture. People have ripped it from its context to teach all kinds of absurd things about faith. Some fail in taking this scripture beyond what it is saying. They apply even more than what it's saying, that if you have enough faith, whatever you wish, it can be done. Some apply it way beyond what scripture is saying. And yet I fear we as Baptists sometimes fail in taking it far enough. We don't have what God intends because we have not asked. We want Jesus to help us with our problem. Jesus wants to help us develop faith. But if the truth is told, most of us would rather live without faith. 
We would rather not trust. We would rather not find ourselves in places where we are compelled to trust. The father's cry for help with his faith is in verse 24, is in fact an act or cry of faith. It says, immediately the father of the trout cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This has got to be one of the most honest and transparent responses in the entire Bible. His faith was imperfect, but it was real. He declared his faith publicly, and yet he recognized its weakness. And in his weakness, he pleads for the Lord's help. The second thing that we look at, the second problem that most Christians make is a lack of focus. Verse 43, the second half. And while everyone marveled at all these things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. From the vantage point of the disciples, Jesus is riding on a wave of popularity. They thought that the masses would recognize him as the Messiah and that he would reveal himself as the king. Jesus warns his disciples about the fickleness of public opinion. Life is full of ups and downs. We all experience good days and bad days. There are times when people are cheering for you. There are other times when they are insulting and reviling you. We must avoid the temptation to anchor our security in life in our reputation, in our savings account, in our job, or in our own plan for our lives. Sometimes life is hard. And the only reliable anchor in the storms of life is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remain connected to him during the storms of life, storms may rage all about you, but you will be able to stand firm, not by your own strength, but by his. The third problem is a lack of humility. Seeking greatness for ourselves. Verse 46 says, Then a dispute rose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be the greatest. The word that is translated dispute here is the word that we get our English word dialogue from. It's stating that the disciples were debating among themselves the merit of each man to determine who they thought should hold what position when Jesus came into his kingdom. Perhaps this particular quarrel arose because Jesus had taken Peter and James and John up on the mountaintop, and perhaps the other nine disciples 
were jealous. We can imagine the disciples arguing among themselves about which one of them was the greatest because they do it several times. And perhaps now they're saying, well, let's just let Jesus settle this. But instead of answering the question, who is the greatest, by pointing to himself, Jesus instead drew their attention to the nature of a little child who he used as an example. He held forth that a child was a model of greatness. By this act, Jesus is telling his disciples, if you want to be great, learn something from this little child. Especially in that culture, children were of little importance and they were not threatening. They were unconcerned about social status and they were not jaded by success and ambition. We most fulfill the humble place a child had in that culture. When we do that, we are more likely than any other time to be on our way to greatness. Fourth and finally, the lack of wisdom, fighting the wrong enemy. Verse 49 says, And now Jesus answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbid him because he did not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. To add insult to injury, the disciples who had not been able to cast out the demon from this boy then came across a man who was successfully casting out demons and he was not one of their group. They suddenly found out that they didn't have a monopoly on God's work. This unknown exorcist not only was accomplishing the master's work, He did it in the master's name and with the master's power, even though he didn't happen to be one of the twelve. Jesus' reply in verse 50 is, Do not forbid him, for whoever is not against us is on our side. Now this can be a little bit confusing considering that Jesus later said in Luke chapter 11 and verse 23, Whoever is not with me is against me. Of course, we have to understand it in that latter verse. Jesus is talking about the work of Satan. And in that case, there is no room for compromise or accommodation. So we have before us four mistakes that most Christians still make. Lack of faith. Not trusting God to do what only God can do. Lack of focus not remembering to keep our eyes upon the Lord, a lack of humility, thinking about ourselves and our own position more than that of others, and a lack of wisdom, fighting the wrong enemy and recognizing that we do not have a monopoly on the work of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day that we have to stand in your presence to worship you and to recognize that you are God and that you are in control of this universe. I pray for us today or gathered in this place. I don't know the condition of every heart, but I know that you do. 
There may be someone here today who has never surrendered themselves to you. They have never recognized that they are sinners, repented of their sins, recognized that they are sinners and they can't save themselves, but also recognizing that Jesus has already done everything necessary for their salvation, that all they must do is recognize that he has already paid for that, their sin on the cross of Calvary and applied in their own hearts and lives. Father, we pray for that one. We recognize that sometimes, Lord, we are guilty of making these same mistakes in our lives today. Help us, Lord, as we look into our lives to apply these truths, these principles in our own lives. And Father, we just want to pray that whatever <clears throat> needs to happen in our lives this morning, we'd be willing to turn to you and accept you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to sing. If you're here this morning, God's spoken to you in some way. Brother James is going to be here. Maybe God has laid on your heart that you need to be saved. Maybe God has laid on your heart you need to follow through. Although you've been saved at point in some point in the past, you've never followed through in baptism. Or maybe God's laid on your heart this is where he wants you to serve. We'd invite you to come, become a part of our family.